We're reading from Ruth 2, verse 1 to 23. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to clean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me clean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go, don't go and clean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here where... Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to clean, Boaz gave orders to his man, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth cleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to an apple. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might get harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to clean 
until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thank you, Arthur, and thank you, Ibrahim, for leading us this morning. Uh, my name is Richard Weston. I'm a member of the church here and one of its mission partners, together with my wife, Catherine, who did the children's story earlier. If you'd like just to turn back to chapter 1 of Ruth, I'm just going to read the first uh, few verses there as well. Uh, we're looking at the whole book today, um, but we can't read all of it. There's not time. But Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes in such wonderful variety of, of forms of, of, of literature, and we thank you for this wonderful story about Ruth, and we pray you'd help us to understand what it has to say to us in today's world. Uh, so please come by your spirit and be our teacher this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2015, it was estimated that there were 244 million migrants in the world, a 41% increase uh, since the turn of the century. People on the move because of war, persecution, education, or just simple economics. These people, these migrants are people, people like Bex's Syrian friends. They're people made in God's image, people created by God for whom Christ died. They present a complex and an urgent opportunity for God's church globally and for ind individual churches like this one. While government agencies, aid organizations, and community groups grapple with mass migration, the church needs to respond with sensitivity and relevance to God's movement through the scattering of humanity at this time in history. And this delightful story gives us just a few clues about how God sees people on the move. We learn first that Ruth's a migrant. She's from Moab, as we've, we've read, a country neighboring Israel. And she comes with mother-in-law Naomi, whose life has just involved one disaster after another. It was the time of the judges, we're told, a time when Israel had no king, when everyone who lived there did as they saw fit. It was lawless. It was unsafe. And then there was the famine. So Naomi herself had been a migrant, along with Elimelech, her, son, her husband, and their two boys, Marlon and Kilian. In Moab, the boys marry Moabite women, Ruth being one of them. But as we've read, Elimelech and both sons die, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law financially and socially destitute. But Naomi hears that God's provided food in her home country and decides to return to Israel. But she encourages, if we were able to read on in chapter one, she encourages Ruth 
and her sister Orpah to stay in Moab in the hope of finding husbands among their own people. But Ruth insists on going too, despite the risks, because to follow Naomi to Israel was fraught with problems, not least her ethnicity, which would make her stand out and most likely lead to discrimination and prejudice. But she's committed to her mother-in-law, and it seems to her mother-in-law's faith. Look at chapter 1 and verse 16, where Ruth says to Naomi, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So she wants to go. She does so taking risks, uh, but she also works hard. Ruth is a vulnerable migrant, yes, but she's a young woman made in God's image, made with dignity, made to work. She's clearly a hard-working, resourceful young woman, and she's of great help and blessing to her mother-in-law. See what Boaz says about her in chapter 2, verse 11. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. It's clear from these verses that Ruth's not a helpless, passive, sponging migrant. Quite the contrary. Three weeks ago, I met an Iranian asylum seeker in Vienna. He lives with friends of mine. Amir is a delightful young man who loves Jesus. That's why he's a refugee. That's why he's seeking asylum. But he wants to make a difference in his adopted country. He would love to work. But the government won't let him work until his status has been settled. It could take years. But he's so eager to work, he's basically built the furniture of our friends in their new, their new flat. Almost every item of furniture he's put together, but used his skills. He wants to make something of his life. He's not a helpless, passive migrant. He exemplifies the passion and hard work of many other migrants that we find here in our country. Whether they're here by choice uh, or not, they're determined to make something of their lives. But having made that point, that they work hard, they do also, particularly when they first arrive, need help. They're far from home, away from everything that's familiar. And sadly, they do encounter prejudice, discrimination, or worse. And that's what Ruth faced. Our familiarity with this story can sometimes blind us to the stark realities that she faced. She was penniless. She was a woman in a male-dominated society, and she was a migrant from a despised foreign nation. She desperately needed help. And she'd seen something in Naomi's life and her faith to make her think that the God of Israel might be able to provide that help and how right she was. You know, in the Old Testament, there are only three specific commands God gives us to love. We're to love God, we're to love our neighbor, and we're to love the stranger, or the alien, the migrant. Those 
it's those who are vulnerable and considered special uh, of attention from God's people. Again and again throughout the Old Testament, God tells his people to care for the widow, the orphan, and the alien, the person away from home. And he, did, he rebukes Israel when they fail to do that. Many of us, as Ibrahim's already intimated, have opportunities to encounter uh, migrants in our city. Uh, if we're in school or we have children uh, in school, we will encounter refugees and their children and other migrants in the classroom or outside the school gate uh, when waiting. Catherine and I regularly met international students outside a school gate or in the playground. So many of us have that opportunity to show God's love. People who are looking for friends, looking for help with their English, looking for those who will accept them and want to learn about their cultures as well as helping them to understand ours. Can we not be those friends? Naomi's words at the end of chapter 1 make it quite clear uh, that Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Israel in need of the kindness of God's people. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1 with me. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So 3,000 years ago, Naomi and Ruth returned from Moab, uh, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Of course, Ruth and Naomi were not the first nor the last migrants in the Bible. Adam and Eve were forced out of the Garden of Eden. The nations of the world became migrants at the Tower of Babel as God scattered them across the world and confused their languages. Many Jews became migrants in Egypt, and then significant numbers were forcibly exiled into Babylon. Jesus himself was a refugee in Egypt for the first few years of his life. As one author has put it, the history of the world is a history of migration, and that history continues into the present day as hundreds of thousands of Syrians and others flee the horrors of war and persecution and seek refuge wherever they can find safety. Hundreds of thousands more are people on the move in pursuit of education and business opportunities. Oxford hosts more than 10,000 international students every year, as, long as, as, as well as all the Syrian uh, refugee families. The, the needs of international students, though not as acute as those of asylum seekers, are nevertheless real, and they're eager for friendship. A Japanese student who came to a, a, a firework night party in our home just last week wrote to Catherine afterwards saying, I really enjoyed spending time at your home. I stay alone in my accommodation, so sometimes I miss family place. Thank you so much. If there's any other event, please invite me. So the world is full of migrants. Ruth is a migrant. Secondly, Ruth finds a redeemer. Chapter 2 begins with Ruth eager to do what she can to help. It seems Naomi's told her about this ancient custom in Israel that the men bringing in the harvest should be deliberately careless as they gather the corn. The God of Israel has for generation after generation shown his care for those who are vulnerable, um, 
the widow, the orphan, the alien, they're all to be cared for. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 24, leaving stalks of, of corn almost deliberately behind in the field so that others could pick them up was one way in which God showed his care or for those people who are vulnerable. And so Ruth begins to glean, to gather in the first field she could find, chapter 2, verse 3. And she finds herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. Unknown to Ruth, Boaz is a relative of her late father-in-law. He's a good man, and he notices Ruth in the fields uh, with his men. After he finds out who she is, he approaches her and encourages her to stay in his fields. My daughter, he says, verse 8, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. and Don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And when you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Ruth's amazed. Verse 10, she bows down with her face to the ground, exclaiming, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replies, I've been told all about what you've done, how you left your father and mother. You came to live with the people you didn't know. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Boaz might easily have said, under whose wings you've come to find rest. In the literature of the Bible, the wings of God are understood to be where human beings can find safety, like a chick under the wings of a hen. And this word rest kind of encapsulates that whole sense of safety, of refreshment, of stillness, of help, of honor and hope. Back in chapter 1, Naomi had spoken to Ruth and Orpah of finding rest in the home of another husband. And in a lesser sense, in a good marriage, that may happen. That rest may be found. But Boaz is right to suggest that we will only truly find rest and a living hope with our creator. The human race was created by the one true living God to live under his protection, under the security of his wings. But as a faithful believer in this God, Boaz himself is the one who will be the channel of God's blessing to Ruth and Naomi. More than that, he'll play a part in continuing the family line of Elimelech and ensuring that God's promise of blessing to the nations will be fulfilled. And we see this first by his request to his men to drop extra stalks of corn for Ruth to collect. Here's a man for whom demonstrating God's faithfulness and generosity is far more important than strict economics. And so when Ruth returns home after her first day gleaning, Naomi is amazed by how much she's collected. And when she discovers that Ruth's been collecting in Boaz's field, her hopes are raised that something better might happen. Because Naomi knows that Boaz is a relative, and she also knows that there's another old custom in Israel that means that Boaz should take the place of the dead husband and sons and marry the widow. He's what's known as a guardian or kinsman redeemer. Under God's law, that means the family line does not die out, and the dead man's family are honored and provided for. Naomi therefore tells Ruth, verse 22, it will be good for you, my daughter, 
to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. She has another agenda. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. Meanwhile, Naomi makes plans to ensure that the custom is fulfilled. But you'll have to go away and read chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4 for yourselves to find out how that happens. Suffice it to say, there are complexities along the way and a willingness on Boaz's part to embrace further cost. But it's not very long before Boaz and Ruth are married. And not long again after that, that the Lord God enables Ruth to conceive and to give birth to a son, Obed. It's chapter 4 and verse 13. Ruth and Naomi, they experienced disaster, but now they've found deliverance. By God's providence and through Boaz fulfilling and even exceeding God's commands, this mother and daughter-in-law are provided for. They have a family. They have descendants. They have rest and security. Their honor is restored. The wings of refuge of God Almighty have come to their rescue and granted them safety. So much more than they could possibly have imagined when they arrived in Bethlehem 12 months earlier. Then they were homeless, friendless, with no hope for the future. Now Ruth, with Naomi, has found a home from home. Although a foreigner, she has a secure future among God's people. And in this story, Boaz has exemplified the Hebrew concept of hesed, of God's grace, his mercy, his kindness, his love and faithfulness that are all rolled into this beautiful concept. And as he resists the God of prophets, encourages a generosity beyond the laws about gleaning, he reveals that God's chesed, God's faithfulness, extends even to despised foreigners and migrants. Boaz becomes a redeemer for Ruth, and in doing so points us to a greater guardian redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes. He was, if you like, a migrant from heaven to earth, becoming a human being in order to give his life on the cross so that we might be redeemed. As those alienated from God because of our disobedience, we're all strangers, foreigners to him. We're still, we're his enemies. But God's word assures that, that while we were God's sinners, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Ruth the migrant found a redeemer in Boaz. Self-centered, wandering human beings like you and me can find a redeemer in Jesus Christ. And God wants many more like us. And he will stop at nothing to ensure people have an opportunity to hear the good news about Jesus. And even the horrors of war that lead to the flight of refugees can be used by him to ensure that people have an opportunity to hear of Jesus. Do you hear what Bex's Syrian friend said? I think God brought us here so that we could meet you. And as Bex said, not really, so that you could meet him. According to Acts 17.26, God determines the times and places that human beings should live so that they might reach out to him and find him. And that's precisely what's happening 
across Europe today. Hundreds, even thousands of Muslim refugees from Syria, Iran, Afghanistan and elsewhere are turning to Christ in considerable numbers. It's, it's a wonderful story to tell and to hear. And like Bex, all of us here in Oxford have an opportunity to meet such people and to share both our lives and Jesus with them. Ruth was a migrant, and yet she found a kinsman redeemer among God's people. And in doing so, she points us forward to Pentecost and the welcoming of many migrants into God's kingdom. God wants all people, all nations, languages and cultures to find a redeemer in the Lord Jesus, his son. And the presence in Oxford of people on the move from all over the world uh, gives us so many opportunities to be involved in pointing them to Christ. So let's be eager to take every opportunity that God brings our way. Some of these people come from contexts where if they'd stayed where they were, might never have heard about him or been interested in knowing. But here in Oxford, in the UK, the opportunities are many and we're privileged to be the bearers of good news, helping migrants to find refuge and a redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ruth's a migrant, Ruth finds a redeemer. And then thirdly, Ruth's given a role in God's global family. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who's better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here in chapter 4, the story reaches its climax. Ruth marries Boaz. By God's grace, she bears a child whom they name Obed. But in the process, Ruth is given a significant role in God's global family. First of all, she brings great blessing to her mother-in-law. I love the way in these final, few, these final few verses focus on what God has done for Naomi through Ruth. It's what God's done for Naomi through Ruth and this whole communal aspect of God's blessing. Naomi, an Israelite, is blessed by Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the migrant. And interestingly, all the women here recognize that fact and celebrate it. It's a good thing. But this is just the beginning. Because the book ends, as you'll notice, verses 18 to 22, with a brief genealogy which identifies young Obed as the grandfather of King David. And if you were to turn over to, chapter, to Matthew chapter 1, you would find those same few verses repeated in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. A foreigner, a hated Gentile, incorporated into the line of God's Messiah for the nations. But we shouldn't be surprised because it's God's intention from the beginning that from a descendant of Abraham, who's the first on that list in Jesus' genealogy, 
that from the beginning, from a descendant of Abraham, the father of Israel, should come blessing for all the nations of the world. And so here it is, Ruth, incorporated into God's global family, produces a child who is the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just Ruth, of course, who benefits from the gospel of Jesus, which is for all nations. She's incorporated into the family of all true believers, Israelite and Moabite together. And if we take the good news of Jesus to those who are culturally different from us and they put their trust in Jesus as well, they too will need to be incorporated into this family of God's church. And that doesn't just mean helping them to become British. If believers from other cultures are to be in truly incorporated into this church family, we will need to find ways to honour their language and cultural backgrounds. And it's been great this morning to have Ibrahim lead us, Arthur to read, and to sing song from Ghana uh, and in those other languages uh, with it. Just as Naomi and her friends saw what a blessing Ruth had become to them, you and I, we may be surprised by the blessing we receive, by how our lives are enriched by the cultural perspectives of Asians and Arabs and Africans, among others. And in time, we may come to enjoy them and celebrate them, just like these women did um, of, of Ruth. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul talks to the Ephesians, praying that, that they, together with all the saints might grasp the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ. The context is the breaking down of the barrier between Jew and Gentile, and by extension from all cultures, in the cross of Christ. That's in chapter 2. But then he says, together with all the saints, that's all those culturally different from ourselves, we will know the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ. Without them, we won't know the full extent of the love of Christ. We will be blessed as we learn to, to see things from the perspective of those who are different from us. I never thought a day would come when I would find myself dancing in a church service and enjoying it. But it happened eight and a half years ago in a genuinely multicultural church in South Africa. There was such a wonderful mix of, of music and languages and cultural expressions of our love for Christ that my very British inhibitions were broken down. And I began to truly relax and to enjoy those differences. For me, it, it was a taste of heaven. Whereas the book of Revelation teaches us we will all mix freely with believers from every tribe and language and nation and find blessing in the wealth of cultural diversity that they will bring. I learned a lot from that church in just a few weeks, not just about cultural diversity, but about hospitality. Every Sunday, the pastor and his wife, one, two different tribal groups, one Sutsu, one Khosa, invited as many as 40 to 50 people back to their home for lunch and extended time of fellowship. How they funded it, I will never know. But they did it joyfully, week after week. Different cultures bring different strengths and different gifts. And if we are to continue to grow as a church, we will need to find ways of incorporating those who are different, of helping them to find their role in this family. And I know Dan and the elders are beginning to think how we can kind of move in this direction as a church. 
And I think Dan's sermon series in the new year is going to kind of give us an, an overview of how culture engaged is with the gospel throughout the scriptures. So let me conclude. Among those who study the theology of missions, migration's currently the big issue on everyone's agenda. And so it should be. As we've seen, God is concerned about migrants, of whom there are approximately 250 million worldwide. In Christ, God experienced life as a migrant. He gave himself to die on the cross so that he could become the redeemer for other migrants and miscreants like us. And in his great mercy and love, God incorporates migrants of all kinds into his global family so that we might all enjoy the extraordinary variety of cultures that he's created. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that while we were still foreigners to you, Christ died for us that we might become friends. Thank you that you long for people from every tribe and nation and language to come to know you and that you will stop at nothing to give them that opportunity to hear. Lord, we thank you that you've brought the nations to our doorstep here in Oxford. And we pray that you would give us such love for them that we would make sacrifices as Boaz did in order to love them, to welcome them, to share the good news of a redeemer with them. And as they come to put their trust in you, to incorporate them into this church family. Lord, please help us, we pray, to be courageous, to speak to people, to be self-sacrificial in offering them love and extend our, our minds and our thinking and our, our perspective so that we are able to welcome them into this family and to help them find their part in your global worldwide family. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in us and pray that we may be channels of your grace to others, especially to the migrants in our city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.